0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Native American children, thousands of them, were adopted to white, non-native families in the 1950s and 60s. These adoptions were mostly closed. And once the children grew up, they had questions about their identities and their birth parents. Susan Harness was one of those children. She lives in Fort Collins now. When she was 18 months old, Social workers removed her from the Flathead Reservation in Montana, then placed her with a white family. She writes about the experience in a new memoir at a time when American Indian adoptions are under scrutiny. And Susan, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here.
0: You were the only child in your adopted family. Um, What did they tell you early on about your birth parents?
1: Well, basically... um so I always knew I was adopted. I always knew that, um, that I was American Indian. I learned later I was Salish. And when I started asking about my birth parents, I was told that they died in a car accident. Was that true? No. <laughs> Not true. No, and I didn't find that out until my, until my early 20s.
0: Do you remember the day you found out and how you found out?
1: Oh um, yeah, I found out because I had um, I had gone up to social services in Montana um, to see if they could tell me anything about my birth family, anything about my birth parents, um, and because I, I had started a search, and I had been lucky enough to talk with an employee who basically allowed me to surreptitiously view my file. And as I'm going through all the information for why I was removed and and everything that the file contained, I saw that my birth mom was living on the Flathead Indian Reservation, 30 miles away from where I was currently living. Oh, my goodness.
0: We'll talk more about that search in just a bit, but um, will you describe for us what it was like growing up with the white family in Montana?
1: It's isolating. And um, in Montana, racism against American Indians is second only to Alaska. And a big reason for that is there are seven Indian reservations. And as a consequence, everybody seems to have a story. Everybody has a story of a brother or an uncle or a cousin having a run-in with an Indian. And as I was growing up, they felt obligated to tell me about it. Um, And so what I heard about American Indians were all very, very negative. Um, And the other piece is that makes it really isolating is that if they told me a story, sometimes those stories were just relaying a story. And sometimes those stories was relaying a message. And if they were relaying a message, I can't go back to my family And I can't go to any of my friends because everybody's white and tell them how I feel about it. Um, And so consequently, you're told, because I knew what was going to happen, you're told kind of the same thing of sticks and stones or just ignore them. And they just don't realize that every time somebody says something like that, it just takes a piece of flesh out of you.
0: Things like what? What were the things they told you?
1: Oh, um, you know if if you're indian you're you're an alcoholic you know you're a drug user, you're promiscuous um for girls that was slutty um you were government subsidized um it was just it's just all the names they had, all the characteristics that white society had ascribed to American Indians.
0: I gather that you looked different from your adopted parents and and that that was difficult,
1: you know I didn't it's so interesting. I didn't see it as difficult when I was younger. The difficulty didn't really arise until I was in junior high. But I do remember you get a very clear message as a young child of what color you should be or what color is acceptable. I can remember my mom and I laying on the grass and looking for four-leaf clovers, and our arms were close together. And I looked at her, you know, white arm, and it's covered with freckles. And I said, oh, my gosh, your skin is so pretty. <laughs> and she said, oh, I would give anything to have, you know, your beautiful brown skin. But when I think back on that conversation now, it's it's a little bit heartbreaking.
0: Can you put these adoptions uh, in the 1950s and 60s, into some broader context for us, what was the thinking behind uh, taking children from their birth parents?
1: Well, basically, um, what what they wanted to do is it was it was kind of on the heels of of an assimilation policy of you know breaking up the reservations and and moving Indian people into urban centers to find jobs, which produced, um, in in a lot of cases, really challenging results. And so this was kind of a continuation of that, is how are we going to deal with the Indian problem? Well, why don't we go ahead and uh, take these kids and remove them off the reservation and place them with white families, and they will become assimilated, and uh, the Indian problem will just go away. And so that's that was kind of the focus of a of a study that was called the Indian adoption project that was um, that was testing to see how well kids would adapt to this situation and, and how well families would adapt. And, and three weeks into the, or three, three years, excuse me, three years into the project, it was deemed to be so successful that the floodgates were absolutely opened on who was going to place us. And I mean, we were placed by social workers and Catholic charities and Lutheran family services and the Methodists and the Pentecostals and the Jews. I mean, I'm telling you, every religious group got involved. And that's why there's thousands of us. How do you feel
0: about your adoptive parents' choice?
1: You know, I I think it's interesting because my adoptive parents represent both sides of the continuum. Um my mom just wanted a child. You know, she'd had several miscarriages and she just wanted a child and I was the first available because of this program. My dad wanted to save a poor Indian child, which was how this program was really put out to adoptive parents. You can save a poor Indian child, you know, from a a horrible future. And when you go out to save somebody, you have all kinds of expectations that are built into that kind of saving. And one of those expectations is that the child has to be grateful for what you've provided them, regardless of how they feel about it. Oh. And um, so, it, yeah, it was, you know, it's, it was, it was, it's been interesting to look back on this arc and uh, see things a little bit more clearer
0: as we hinted at earlier in the conversation you ran into barriers trying to find your birth mother and siblings who are part of the Salish Kootenai people a decade passes and finally you find them how would you describe the the initial connection
1: wow that's it's interesting because in you know in popular culture there's this attitude that blood always recognizes blood and that it's going to be a hallmark moment, and you're going to run into each other's arms, and you're going to cry, and and it's going to be great, and you're going to walk off into the sunset. And for a lot of kids, and and for me specifically, that's not how that worked. Um, it's it's awkward because what you're doing is you're you're seeing your own skin color reflected, probably for the first time, in a very real way. And you may or may not be prepared to see that. I was surprised to to see that they didn't look like me as much as I thought they would. Huh. I was surprised to see my birth mom uh, looked more like a photograph out of um, an Edward S. Curtis uh, book than than me. And I think what was really disconcerting about that is when I looked at her, I didn't see her; I saw me in the future. <laughs> And um, and it's, it plays a mind game. Um, and if you do create a relationship, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort in order to do that. What they don't tell you about the popular culture uh, moment of finding is that a lot of times these relationships fizzle after a relatively short period of time, you know, maybe a few months or maybe a year maybe a couple of years, because there's no foundation on which to build a relationship. And there has to be kind of a unifying idea that that a relationship is wanted.
0: Yeah, I think that those reunions are so idealized, and we forget all of the nuances that make them difficult, if not impossible. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Susan Harness, who lives in Fort Collins. Her new memoir is Bitter Root a Salish memoir of transracial adoption. Were you ever able to ask your mother what it was like for her to have a child taken away?
1: Um, The first conversation we had was extremely awkward um, because she spent a good portion of the time staring down at her lap, um, crying uh, because... There was a lot of shame that she had lost three of her nine children to the social workers. Um, And that's about as much as we explored that arena. It was very painful, I think.
0: What is the nature of your relationship with her now?
1: Well, she passed away. Um, I had visited with her four times. The first time was awkward. Uh, the second time was awkward for me because that was a little bit more real. Hmm. The third time was probably our most healing conversation uh, that we had. We talked about a lot of things, and, and I could see her for who she was instead of who I wanted her to be. Um, and the fourth time was was really challenging because she was at the end of her life, and I wasn't prepared to see her like that.
0: So more loss. Right. As you say the the thrust of this adoption program was assimilation at one point a third of all Indian children in the United States had been uh, removed from their birth homes. Uh, then in the 1970s a new law came along the Indian Child Welfare Act. It had bipartisan support and essentially it put a greater emphasis in adoption proceedings on whether a child is a member of an Indian tribe or an eligible member Uh, But some say that it has gone too far. They are suing. I just want to play this clip from uh, NPR. This is with Timothy Sanderfer. He's an attorney at the Goldwater Institute in Phoenix.
2: We're working on a case right now in Ohio where there's a two-year-old boy born in Ohio, has lived in Ohio his entire life, almost his entire life with an Ohio foster family. But because his ancestry is Gila River, the Gila River Indian tribe in Arizona obtained an order from its own tribal court forcing the child to be sent to live on the reservation near Phoenix simply because the blood in his veins happens to have the required amount of DNA. That's unconstitutional and absurd
0: as NPR reported at the heart of this court fight, is whether the law represents an unfair racial preference, or if it's just, just that it recognizes with American Indians that there's a sovereignty issue here. Do, do you think the Indian Child Welfare Act is still needed?
1: Absolutely, the Indian Child Welfare Act is still needed, because um, I, I truly believe I mean, we didn't choose to be a racial identity group. This was not of our choosing. This was put into place when they started putting together the Dawes rolls. of, you know, you have to be so much Indian blood. And so as far as I'm concerned, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that this is who you are and then say, you know, you're a constitutional hazard. Um, I think the other piece is, is I I believe, and not everybody agrees with me, and and I'll say that right now, but the powers that be have always been after the land. And every assimilation program and every assimilation project that has been put into place has been to fragment and and break apart American Indian people and American Indian tribes. None of it has been put into place to protect us. And if you break us apart enough— the idea is is that we'll just disappear, and guess what? That land will now be available, and that's what I think they're after. They're after the land. They're after the resources.
0: Help someone understand that who is not as close to this as you are and who thinks, my, that sounds conspiratorial, or uh, why would the U.S. government act that way?
1: So let's go back into history a little bit. Let's go to, um, let's go to the Indian Removal Act of 1830, no. an act that was put into place by President Andrew Jackson. And in this act, he was going to move um, five tribes from the southeast um, in, in the U.S. up to the newly opened Oklahoma Territory. And it was couched in terms of, you know, we just, there's a lot of skirmishes going on. We want to protect them. Um, And so this is going to be the better place for them. Now, never mind that they were asked to leave their homelands. Never mind that they were asked to leave their ancestral spaces. Never mind that they were asked to, you know, go 1,500 miles over into a piece of land that looked nothing like what they left. And basically what you find out is that opened up 25 million acres of land for homesteading.
0: Will you talk just a little bit about your relationship with the, the tribe today, the folks on the reservation? Um, as you said, your mother passed away, but I know that you, you still have a blood family. Can you talk about those relationships and and maybe contrast that with the relationships today with your adoptive family?
1: Um well both of my parents and my adoptive family are are passed away also. Um and the relationship that I had my mom was always happy that I found my family. She didn't want to have an interaction with them. That was a little bit too close for comfort. Hmm. Uh, my dad was not happy that I tried to do a search at all because he wanted to be the only person. Um, when I, when I talk with my reservation family, I have one sister that I'm, I'm very close to. I have a um, one brother that I'm very close to. And I have another brother that, you know, I text her or, or talk with um, several times a month. And and these are really strong, strong relationships. But as I said, they've taken a lot of effort to create. And in fact, um, my youngest brother, upon the passing of my mom, or our mom, I should say, you know, we were talking and we always came back to her. And it, she was the central part of our conversation. And finally, he looked at me and and he said, you know, it's, it might not be a bad thing that she's gone. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, Because it gives us a space to have our own relationship that doesn't just revolve around her. And I knew that it had been a successful reunion at that point.
0: Susan, thank you for sharing your story with us.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Susan Harness of Fort Collins is the author of Bitterroot, a Salish memoir of transracial adoption. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Every day at noon, chimes ring at Denver City Hall. And in the park just across the way, a line of several dozen people moves forward. Each person accepts a paper bag with a sandwich, peanut butter and jelly the day we were there, some chips and a bottle of water.
1: There you are. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Good, good to see you. Yeah. Hello, Will. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good. You're very
2: welcome. On yep,
0: Christmas welcome. Day, this line will be much longer, and the meal will be heartier. The people who attend the 10th annual Christmas in the Park will also be offered boots and clothes, hand warmers, and travel toothpaste to make life on the streets or life in transition a little more bearable. We met a man named Dave who's thinking ahead.
3: Well, last year I got a sleeping bag, this year I intend to get a nice winter coat.
0: Pastor Jerry Herships organizes Christmas in the park and relies on a lot of volunteers to make it happen. Pastor, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks for having me, Ryan.
0: Again, this is the 10th year. Give us a picture of what Christmas Day will look like there in the heart of Denver.
3: It'll be, um, it'll be organized chaos for the most part. It will be a, uh, uh, we call it a flash mob of joy. Uh, people start lining up around eight. And uh, we get our volunteers there about 10. At uh, noon, we'd sort of do a rope drop and let people go through the line. And there is everything you can imagine that you would ever need from uh, men's underwear to tamales to winter coats to uh, um, think of anything you would take camping. It's all there men's underwear to tamales yes okay. that's the full spectrum yeah. and i i think there's even a choir there is there is we've got a, a makeshift choir folks anybody is welcome to join in say they want to show up but they they may have already given away the, the few things they have and they still want to be part of the scene and part of christmas they can join in we've got folks uh, who are housed we have folks that are unhoused that are part of that choir we have folks that bring guitars it's 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 a joy. It really is. Help us understand what
0: articles, what items are most
3: sought after for those who are homeless or in transition. Sure. Uh, We decided a number of years ago, probably about five, that we were going to invest an amount of money. So we'll give away 500 winter coats, brand new winter coats. We'll give away – last year we gave away 700 plus brand new sleeping bags. Uh, that's almost like buying someone a home. I mean that, that's crucial for them to have that. Uh, backpacks are a huge need. Uh, these are all things uh, – a number of Methodist churches have jumped on board, St. Andrews, St. Luke's, uh, Highlands, um, Wash Park. All of them have, have sort of adopted an item and they'll say, we'll bring backpacks. We'll bring this. And they give them away in, in dozens if not hundreds.
0: Socks, particularly important, I understand.
3: Our understanding, we didn't know that when we started. We started in the park doing the lunches 10 years ago. And we talked to the folks in line and and socks are like gold. Um, If you ever wore the same pair for a week, I pray you didn't. Um, there's such a necessity uh, just to stay healthy on the street. And so we'll give away a lot of those.
0: I wonder if there are well-intentioned people who bring
3: items that just aren't helpful in the end. Uh, And maybe you've had your own learning curve in this regard. Sure, for sure. You know, we found um, for a long time we were were bringing uh, children's stuff. And what we realized was a lot of the folks that are going through line we're just needing essentials. They were just needing essentials and and the children's things weren't moving quite as fast. So now we're we're focused more on how do people survive on the street and what are some ways that we can give them joy? We gave away 1200 cheeseburgers last year, you know, and and that puts a smile on a lot of faces. It
0: occurs to me though that things have to be somewhat portable as well if someone doesn't have a home to store stuff away. Absolutely. And maybe the size of
3: items matters. Uh, we'd get people that would say, you know, I, I know you needed travel size shampoos, but we got them a whole size. We got them great big. Well, that adds about three pounds to their pack that they're carrying around all day. So, yes, it's crucial to have things that are small, that are portable, that are easy to store. And imagine whatever you're bringing, they're, they're carrying with them all day. When you said sleeping bags, it's lovely, but it's also heartbreaking.
0: I mean, I wonder if there's a part of you that feels this is a patch on a much more profound Problem? No question.
3: There is there is no question. We're very intentional about recognizing what we're doing and what we're not doing. We're not solving Mm -hmm. homelessness. We're not. And and we also make our presence known at the Capitol. We understand legislation is important. Affordable housing is important. But what we do is try to be that stopgap in between. Try to keep them warm for tonight and keep them alive until tomorrow when hopefully. Laws and legislations and other things will change so they can benefit from those as well.
0: A decade is a, is a good chunk of time to have seen perhaps the evolution of the homeless problem in Denver. Uh, or the worsening of the problem? What have you noticed?
3: Yeah, what, what we've seen is uh, affordable housing has, has really shrunk. It's been very, very hard to see folks. Um, you know, there's, there's as many reasons for homelessness as there are homeless folks. But one of the crucial ones is health care and another crucial one is housing. And folks just get uh, sort of squeezed out of affordable housing and they find themselves on the street uh, that they never would have thought they would have been there.
0: So I gather that means you see people, the same people from year to year.
3: We do. Uh, it, most folks that hit housing uh, aren't aren't or ho- homelessness aren't homeless for a long period of time. Usually, it's right around the two year mark, maybe three. So we'll see them for a while, mm. but they just hit a rough patch, and then they usually find a way out of it. It's the tough part is when they're in the midst of that rough patch.
0: The gentleman we heard from earlier, Dave, uh, told us that he actually has a place to stay right now. Right, uh, and so you are uh, interacting with folks who are in transition who have yep. found housing.
3: Absolutely, yeah. We we we're in we're in Civic Center Park um, three hundred and sixty five days a year. We're there at noon every day, and we hand out the lunch. We get to know the people, and we see them uh, as they move into homelessness, when they're in the midst of it, and as they're moving out of it. And we celebrate as much as they do when they when they get a place.
0: Do you need volunteers?
3: We do. We do. We tell okay. everybody on Christmas Day to show up at 10 a.m. and uh, bring whatever you want to give away. We have sections, so we'd tell you right where to go with that. And uh, it's a giant party. It really, it it changes folks' understanding of Christmas.
0: Talking about that area between the Denver City County Building and the state capitol. Pastor Herships, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. He runs Christmas in the Park in Denver in its 10th year. Here's a carol from last year.
1: The stars in the
0: There are some eye-catching holiday displays in Colorado. I think of the giant gingerbread house at the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs or the Denver City County building, which gets bathed in lights. Jana Clark's favorite display doesn't exist anymore, and she hasn't seen anything like it since. I remember the windows having animated animals and doll-like mannequins that moved and had music. They were just beautiful little scenes in each window as you walked around the outside of the building. She's talking about the windows of a bygone Denver department store, May DNF, on 16th Street. In the 1960s, Clark was a college student here. During finals and before she took the train home for Christmas, she always made sure to gaze at those windows. I didn't grow up in a large city, and we had nothing like it in the small town in Illinois. But something's been nagging at Jana. So she reached out through Colorado Wonders to ask, what happened to all those decorations, the animals and dolls and scenery? Are they in a warehouse somewhere, a landfill? Well, we got as close to an answer as we could, thanks to Mark Barnhouse. His new book is Lost Department Stories of Denver. Mark, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be back. We'll get to Jenna's question in a moment. Uh, but first off, May DNF
2: went all out at wintertime. I mean, it even had like a ski slope outside. They did that one year in 1964 to kind of promote winter sports in Colorado. I have seen the image of this, and it's perilously close to (laughs) the gathered
0: crowd, other businesses, and the street.
2: Yeah, the funny thing about the ski slope was that it was actually uh, carpeted in white nylon carpet. So these Olympic skiers that they had down there we're actually risking their careers by by demonstrating to the you've given crowds.
0: A, a lot of uh, photos to us that we'll post at cpr.org of the
2: windows that Jenna is talking about what's stood out to you about them well i you know my my I'm a, my memory of the windows is fairly vague cuz i was just a little kid uh-huh. but uh, i do remember the the movements they were they would just sort of twist back and forth and and uh, there were all kinds of different scenes uh, that that evoked, and every year they had a different theme. Yeah.
0: Uh, so in one of the photos that you provided us, it's sort of a travel theme, and there's a there's an old jetliner, f- yeah. flying above a family. I think that's either just been on a plane or about to get on one.
2: That's right. And uh, the idea for that particular year was to illustrate the wonderful world of winter. The wonderful world of winter. Okay. Why do you think department
0: stores put all this time and money into Windows? Well,
2: it was always about driving traffic, and especially in the 1960s, uh, we were starting to get the suburbanization of shopping, and the downtown stores were starting to lose trade. So they wanted to bring people down, uh, and, and Windows were one great way to do that. Because they felt
0: that competition from the suburbs downtown had been suffering.
2: Yeah, it's from their own stores, actually. They were kind of cannibalizing themselves, but they they, uh, wanted to keep those downtown flagships going.
0: Because they had opened those other stores in the suburbs. Right. I'm just fascinated by the fact that this
2: is your, what, third book on department stories? That's right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what fascinates you so much about them?
2: Well, I tell the story when I was a little kid. I was seven years old, and my mother said one morning, uh, get your clothes on. It was a Saturday morning. Get your clothes on. We're going to go downtown. And we, we went downtown, and we entered a darkened department store and rode the elevator up to the fifth floor, and it was a breakfast with Santa Claus. And there were, you know, hundreds of kids and their parents. And uh, from that moment on, I was fascinated with the whole idea of department stores. Which department store was it? It was the Denver Dry Goods.
0: The Denver Dry Goods. Tell us just briefly about it. Uh,
2: The Denver was kind of the biggest store that uh, downtown Denver had. And uh, they had the tea room. And everyone, I've talked to lots of groups, and everybody has memories of going to the tea room. Uh, You'd get dressed up to go downtown and you would put on, uh, women would put on white gloves and their hats and their, you know, nylons and uh, men would wear suits. And it was originally designed to keep shoppers shopping, you know, grab a nosh in between going to different floors. But it became its own institution. Its own destination. Yeah. Okay, we've got
0: to get to Jana's question. Let's not keep her in suspense any longer. What became of the displays that so captivated her as a young woman at May DNF on 16th Street?
2: Well, I'm afraid they were sold. I spoke to the man who designed those displays, a man named Bob Rhodes. And uh, every year he had a certain budget. So in order to augment his budget, he would sell the figures to another department store in Alabama.
0: He would sell them and then presumably use the profits to buy, something to buy new something yes. that would wow Okay, so is it that they might have lived for a time in displays in Alabama? Definitely, but we can't say what happened to them after that. We cannot say, <laughs> long gone. Okay, Jenna, you'd have to travel to Alabama, which wasn't in our budget for this particular Colorado <laughs> wonders question. Uh, May DNF stands for Daniels and Fisher. Uh, the name is really an example early on of the kind of consolidation we've seen in retail. What, I guess May Company would have bought Daniels and Fisher. Correct. You call Daniels and Fisher Denver's
2: pioneer department store. Why? Because it was founded uh, when Denver was only six years old. It was founded in 1864. Wow. Wow. So. And what needs would it have been
0: serving at that point?
2: In the early days, this is before Denver even had a train connection, but uh, they would a lot of people were coming to Denver to go up to the diggings up in the, in the hills to, to look for gold. So they sold mining equipment and they sold uh, clothing, rough clothing that miners would use. But they also sold finer things for the women that were starting to move into Denver. And certainly for any
0: families that were striking it rich. That's right. In in them, their hills. Yes. And of course, the remnants of the old Daniels and Fisher department store is the tower, the clock tower, on what is now the 16th Street Mall.
2: Yes. Uh, The tower, the department store itself was was demolished in 1971 for urban renewal, uh, but they preserved the tower. And uh, in 1980 uh, to 82, Dave French, Denver businessman, renovated it, and we have it today.
0: Gosh, I see the images of the old entire department store, and I think it would have been lovely if they'd kept it. Can you it, describe it? for? I think it was like a, the, the whole block.
2: Well, it grew over time. It started out as a little two-story building in 1875, and oh. they they kept adding on, and they added more floors. Uh, the tower was built in 1910, uh, 1911. One of the tallest structures in Denver for a long time. It was the tallest structure in Denver for 40 years until <laughs> 1958. Till the the
0: skyscrapers came in. That's right. In the name of urban renewal, as you say. You're listening to Colorado Matters and Colorado Wonders. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking with Mark Barnhouse about his new book, Lost Department Stores of Denver. Uh, According to your book in early department stores, self-service was just unheard of. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, in the early days, think back to the turn of the century, you had... Uh, You would walk into a department store and you had uh, counters that had lots of people behind them to serve you. And then you would sit down on a stool that was bolted to the floor and they would bring things to you. And then once you'd made your selections, then they would send your cash to a central cashier office while they wrapped your – and your package would be wrapped for you in in paper and string and – and uh, either you could you could take it home with you or you could have it delivered. I mean, in that way, it was like having your own
0: personal shopper. But that wasn't an exclusive thing. It was understood that that's how it worked.
2: That's right. Uh, it was a different. It's hard to imagine that level of service in a store today. I wonder if it was reflected in the prices, though. It had to have been. Well, the department stores catered to the middle classes and the upper middle classes and the wealthy. So, the, you know, they, you wouldn't find too many people of, of limited means shopping there.
0: By contrast, you write about an early bargain center called the Golden Eagle? Yes. You say old timers who remember shopping there are rarer and rarer with each passing year. What should we picture when we picture the Golden Eagle in Denver?
2: Well, the Golden Eagle was at 16th and Lawrence where Ryder Square is today, and it was a full-size department store, five, five floors, uh, with all the usual departments in it. But the owner, Leopold Goldman, was known for uh, seeking out uh, other stores that were going out of business. So he oh. would bring the goods to Denver, mark them down, and, and Denverites could enjoy a bargain.
0: The symbol of the eagle in the Golden Eagle meant a lot to the store's founder, I understand. Yeah,
2: Goldman was an immigrant. He came uh, over uh, from Bavaria in the 1860s. And he quickly became very patriotic, and he hired a carpenter to construct the Eagle out of wood, and he had it gilded and hung it above his store.
0: Department stores of yore, as you've alluded to, had tea rooms. They had shoe repair, travel agencies. If there were one store or maybe one department in a store that you wish you could have seen in your life. What do you think it would be? Pick any era, Mark Barnows.
2: Well, I really would have liked to have seen Daniels and Fisher uh, at the turn of the century. Uh, Right after William Cook Daniels, the son of the founder, took over, he spent a lot of money remodeling the store with mahogany uh, display cases with curved glass and lots of uh, oriental rugs everywhere. And it was just a a fantastic experience. I would love to see that.
0: There are too many defunct department stores to mention, but names like Newsteaders, Jocelyn's, Fashion Bar. Tell us before we go about, am I
2: pronouncing this right, Gayno Downs? That's correct. Gayno Downs, the store with the shadow box windows. Yeah, these windows were on 16th Street. Uh, the store was at 16th and Stout across from Newsteaders. And these were called shadow box windows because the glass itself was curved from the top down so that when you were walking by, instead of getting the glare from the sun, you could see the goods within. And they they were so famous, they called, they adopted, that is their slogan
0: Thanks for walking down Memory Lane with us. Thank you Ryan Mark Barnhouse, author of Lost Department Stories of Denver and he helped us answer a question through Colorado Wonders about holiday displays downtown. What are your questions about the state? Head to cPR.org we'll try to find the answer. It's the final shopping weekend before Christmas. Still trying to find that perfect gift? How about a good book? I recently got some reading recommendations, all with a flavor of Colorado or the West. Nicole Magistro is owner of The Bookworm of Edwards. Hello again, Nicole.
4: Hello, Ryan.
0: And Bethany Stroud is the buyer for the Tattered Cover Bookstores. Hi, Bethany. Hi. Uh, Nicole, there's apparently a book you'd like to give everyone you know. It's quite an endorsement. What is this book?
4: Yes, the book is called The Four Sacred Gifts by Dr. Anita Sanchez. She is a Boulder-based author. And this book is just the antidote for all the holiday stress that's about to come crashing down the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, she has a wonderful way of quelling our anxiety about the world today um, through four different values she shares that are really ancient wisdom from indigenous people. So she talks about hope. She talks about healing, unity, and forgiveness. I personally have reflected a ton about this book and have found so many wonderful nuggets to keep throughout my regular life.
0: What sort of perspective does she bring uh, Anita Sanchez.
4: She she has a background as a um, Mexican-American and Aztec woman. She has a PhD in organizational development and is a fascinating speaker um, who works with corporations. But she's really looking inward in terms of the soul and helping us to remember what's most important to us as humans and connecting with each other.
0: Is there some nugget you would share with us <laughs> if, that if we don't get the occasion to read this book, will help us through the holidays?
4: Yes, you know, My favorite nugget that she talks about is listening with the softest part of your ear
0: listening with the softest part of your ear
4: and i think that's great for parents Uh, i'm a parent of a seven-year-old i it's great for um, the workplace it's great for when we're talking one-on-one about topics that require intense listening so
0: okay the book is four sacred gifts by anita sanchez bethany you recommend a collection of magazine articles tell us about this
5: Yeah. So this is called Mile High Stories, and it is essays selected from the past 25 years of 5280 magazine. And it really is like the best American essays collection, which comes out every year. But every piece in this book is about Colorado. It talks about everything. There's a beautiful ode to the preeminent Colorado author Kent Hariff. There's a wonderful piece about the Colorado Rockies, the baseball team. There's a wonderful piece about looking for treasure in the Colorado Rockies, the mountains. I really felt that coming to this, if you've lived in Colorado for the past 25 years, it's like revisiting um, parts of your life. And if you're brand new, I really felt that this was a uh, a contemporary overview of Denver and the entire Colorado state.
0: And it turns out that the holidays might be the perfect time to do readings of essays as opposed to whole books.
5: Yes, bite-sized.
0: Bite-sized Mile High Stories, 25 years of our best writing from the editors of 50 to 80 And you don't have to memorize these titles. We'll put them on our website later today, cpr.org. Nicole, this book, Ski Soldiers, it's a true life adventure story.
4: That's right. Um, Louise Borden has written an adventure story for kids based on the life of Pete Seibert, who was a 10th Mountain Division soldier and founder of Vail Ski Area. Um, It's an amazing book that will um, inspire kids and adults. Um, Pete went to war and came back injured. He thought he would never ski again. Um, But of course, the history tells us otherwise. I love the full-size photographs that complement the verse going on in the book to really kind of connect kids with the real history of Colorado. And it totally begs for a field trip up the mountains to Camp Hale.
0: To Camp Hale. And of course, it was many of those skiing soldiers who founded the resorts we know today.
4: That's right. Skiing is such a part of our Colorado
0: heritage. Ski Soldier by Louise Borden. Uh, Bethany, you brought a young adult novel that you say old adults <laughs> will like as well. What's this?
5: This is called From Twinkle with Love by Cindy Menon, and this book is fun. It's just, it's so much fun. I sort of talk about this book as being for all of the thousands of people that watched the recent movie To All the Boys I've Loved Before. I personally know many adults who loved and watched that movie. The author lives in Colorado Springs, and the book is set in the Springs. Having a young adult novel set in Colorado is really rare. And this is the story of a young Indian American filmmaker who's writing letters to all of her favorite female directors as she gets for the first time to make a movie movie. Uh, She's so excited. And then, of course, there is a fun
0: romance as well. So Twinkle is the main character, this protagonist, this film-obsessed Indian-American main character. You know, we interviewed the author, Sanja Menon, about this book and about Twinkle, this character. How aware she is that she and her family don't have the money her classmates have. Uh, And Menon said that was a lot like her own high school experience.
4: I grew up fairly wealthy in India. But when my family moved here to the U.S., I was 15— and we lost all our wealth. We lived in free housing uh, on my street. And, you know, on the way to school, it was very common to see drug dealers and prostitution. And somebody was stabbed on my street for $11. So it was a completely different shift coming from where I did to where I landed. And I knew what it felt like to not belong in a high school full of kids who had lawyers and engineers and doctors as parents. My dad was an engineer, too, but I didn't live that kind of
0: lifestyle. Okay, so that's the author, Sanja Menon, reflecting on her own experience, which is reflected in this book, again, uh, from Twinkle with Love. Uh, Nicole, what else did you bring for us as holiday gift ideas?
4: Well, I brought a cookbook. I normally uh, love to cook during the holidays, and this is no exception. I mean, High Alpine Cuisine, written by Marlin, Marla Meredith Is a great ode to the kinds of Alpine uh, food we think of. Um, Have you ever had Kaiser Schmarrn?
0: Kaiser Schmarrn. No, that sounds like a mean German soldier.
4: It is an amazing pancake fluffiness with fruit and plums and powdered sugar, and it comes in a big cast iron pan. And once you have it, you will never not order it again. In fact, in this cookbook, you can make it at home. Um, The cast iron pan is a major piece of equipment um, to complete the recipes in high Alpine cuisine, but it's a paperback cookbook that's a great um, entry into Austrian... Uh, Swiss, and American cooking um, that you see around ski resorts. It's just the kind that warms your heart.
0: High Alpine cuisine. The nice thing about a cookbook about high Alpine cuisine is you know they're going to have... Uh, recipes altered for altitude. Yes. That's given. That's
4: right. You don't have to make any adjustments.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Bethany, for those who want to look through maybe beautiful photographs instead of an intense read, tell us about your pick for a so-called coffee table book.
5: Yeah. I brought in this book called The Continental Divide Trail, which is about exactly what it says. Um, And I will say this book has gorgeous photographs, including a whole section on the Colorado Divide, uh, but it also does have a ton of uh, really interesting and I would also say sort of bite-sized information, including um, I was just telling Nicole that I had not known that America the Beautiful was written about the Continental Divide. Uh, Yeah, I had no idea. Um, It also talks about the first female through hikers, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's um, fireside chat about the divide. There's just a lot of great tidbits of information in this.
0: You know, I think the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail, I think they get so much more attention attention than the Continental Divide Trail. So it's nice to see some love for Colorado's own here.
5: Yes. And I mean, the vistas in this book are breathtaking.
0: Okay. The Continental Divide Trail uh, as a coffee table book. Tell us about this. Speaking of mountains living beneath the Colorado peaks, what's this, Nicole?
4: Well, uh, Bud and Betsy Knapp were the team behind Architectural Digest and Bon Appetit magazines. They have a beautiful uh, ranch in Eagle County that. That is a total tribute to environmentally friendly luxury, really. Uh, The coffee table book is storytelling about the place, about connecting to the land and the wildlife there, and also photographs of beautiful architecture. The book is told over the course of many years and every season at the ranch. Um, And I think people will love this book if they like the books of John Fielder or Ralph Lauren.
0: Or Ralph Lauren. That's right. Or His Clothes. (laughs) Living living Beneath the Colorado Peaks by Bud and Betsy Knapp. Okay, finally, Bethany, a book for uh, some of the youngest readers once again. Tell us about Down by the River.
5: Yes, I think that this is the perfect holiday gift for all of the youngest children. Um, This book is about a day spent fly fishing with a young boy, his mother and grandfather. It's about sharing a love of the outdoors with your entire family and then passing that love on to the next generation. The illustrations of the mountains, of the golden leaves are gorgeous.
0: Okay, Down by the River by Andrew Weiner and illustrated by April Chu. Once again, we'll post these selections Gifts for yourself or others of the literary variety to CPR.org. Thanks to both of you for being with us.
5: Thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan.
0: Bethany Strout, chief buyer for the Tattered Cover Bookstores. Nicole Magistro owns The Bookworm of Edwards. Finally today, music fans said goodbye to beloved artists in 2018, Aretha Franklin, Mac Miller, and most recently Nancy Wilson. Our colleagues at CPR's Open Air pay tribute to Legends We've Lost with a program called Dearly Departed. They ask Colorado artists to cover songs by these late musicians. Members of the Denver bands Tito Alba and Daisy came together to remember Dolores O'Riordan, lead singer of the 1990s Irish rock band the cranberries with dreams. Tough one. The Cranberries run my first concerts, so that's Denver's own Tido Alba and Oxide Daisy remembering the Irish singer Dolores O'Riordan with dreams. O'Riordan died in January at 46. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.